What does accessing healthcare have in common with buying a house? You may be thinking, not much. And in most health systems today, you're currently right. But the reality is, in the future, there should be more in common with these two decisions. Here's why. Your house is a big investment. So you set your goals and do your research. Location, overall size, number of bedrooms, and so on. You try and be clear on what type of property will fit your lifestyle and goals. And you have a budget, so you search for the best option and make corresponding trade-offs. In fact, people take more or less the same approach when buying other expensive products such as a computer, smartphone, or a car. But when it comes to healthcare, most people today aren't involved in decision-making. You're detached from the decision-making process. You most likely receive prescribed solutions that you didn't participate in creating because your health system and the clinician's approach isn't personalized. Healthcare is a big investment, and it's also a deeply personal one. And in the future, to maximize the benefits of personalized health, every single one of us should be as engaged with healthcare as we are when making any big purchase. This direct engagement is known as people-centric care. Here's a clip from the World Health Organization to explain. People-centered care means ensuring that health services are tailored to people's needs and are provided in partnership with them rather than simply given to them. It means care where people, families, and communities are respected, informed, engaged, supported, and treated with dignity and compassion. People-centered care can increase access to health services and reduce unnecessary use of services. This idea that individuals should be active participants in their health is central to personalized health. Have you ever felt frustrated or angry in dealing with your health care? Well, you're not alone. Future-proofing healthcare has interviewed people like Tanya Dobbin, who was diagnosed with breast cancer and felt she didn't have much of a voice in her care. Brochures were given to her, tests were scheduled for her, and a care plan was designed without much of her input. This left Tanya feeling more like a number than an individual with unique needs and preferences. To deliver the right interventions to the right people at the right time, People have to not only understand their unique health needs and options, but they have to be willing to become their own force for change. So how can people do this? In this episode, we'll explore three critical enablers. First, in addition to making good health choices, individuals should participate in data sharing because data can be used to improve research and care delivery. Second, Individuals should shift their mindset to view health as an investment, not just in themselves, but in their communities. And third, health systems have a responsibility to ensure that everyone, regardless of geography or socioeconomic status, can access the care they need. Technology can be a powerful equalizing force, as long as health systems make it accessible. To explore these points, I spoke with two experts and entrepreneurs, KP Yelpala and Janice Cha. KP has worked with health systems in the United States and across Africa. And Janice is an expert in aging and elder care in Asia Pacific. Their experience and insights, 
along with other global examples, demonstrate that people are indeed willing to be active participants in their health. This is Future Proofing Healthcare, a podcast that explores how the choices we make today impacts the healthcare of tomorrow. I'm your host, Tony Estrella. As a person living with MS, I know exactly how it is to miss more data about the disease because we don't have a cure for MS at the moment. We're hearing from Birgit Bauer, a journalist and patient advocate from Germany and an advisor to future-proofing healthcare. She's speaking at a recent webinar hosted by the European Federation of Pharmaceutical Industries and Associations. For multiple sclerosis patients like Birgit, Data not only flag small changes in function, which can signal a flare-up, but help researchers better understand MS and assist clinicians to deliver more effective care. And someday, the benefits of individuals sharing their data may even unlock a cure for MS. So it's important to use that data also for the public, for the citizens, to find out more about diseases, to identify patients much earlier and help them faster and more effective. And I think this is very important. When we opt in to share our data with researchers or other trusted healthcare programs, we give them critical information to unlock insights that help all of us. The 2019 Apple Heart Study is one excellent example. In this program, more than 400,000 people across the U.S. agreed to share their data with Apple and Stanford's medical school, as tracked by the Apple smartwatch. Why? Researchers wanted to see if the Apple smartwatch could detect arrhythmia in users. And the outcome was a success. People who received an alert because of irregular readings were connected to a physician for follow-up. The data from this study not only helped the people who needed the additional medical attention, but it also led to useful insights about cardiovascular health and new use cases for technology to proactively monitor our health. A willingness to share our data can help health systems better understand our needs and send us information that is both timely and helpful. I spoke about this with KP Yalpala, the CEO and co-founder of Inon Health, digital health company, and a board member of Yale University's Public Health Leadership Council. KP started his career with the Clinton Foundation, where he worked with public health systems across Africa to use data and technology to target interventions and help individuals access care. What happens today is because that information is not easily accessible or organized in a centralized way, most communication is generalized. So you and your mother and sister and me and everyone get the same information. Instead of sending generalized messages, KP says health systems should prioritize targeted messaging. KP calls this precision communication, and it's a crucial aspect of people-centric care because it helps individuals engage with their clinicians. If your provider is sending you constantly information that's not relevant to you digitally, you will not engage. If I want to communicate to you, I need a centralized view of what your needs are, and then I can automate communications just relevant to you. And then if that communication is relevant to you, you're more likely to engage on it. You're more likely to act on it. To get that two-way conversation to do this digitally is really a, it's a data problem. 
individuals can also use their data to help them better understand their healthcare options. To the extent that people are proactive about searching online and using mobile device or digital tools to seek information about their needs, they're going to find that there's a lot more options out there to help them go after what they think is important for them than there've ever been. One such online tool links data from people with certain back conditions to a study called SPORT, which ran from 2000 to 2005. SPORT, or the Spine Patient Outcomes Research Trial, followed thousands of back pain patients in the United States who received either surgical or non-surgical treatment. The study also followed their recovery processes. This data is now publicly available through a calculator created by Dartmouth University. Someone with back pain can enter their personal, clinical, and demographic information, and the output report compares their responses to the longitudinal sport data to help them assess their treatment options and likely outcomes. The individual can take these insights to their next appointment to ask their clinician follow-up questions and be involved with the decision on the next course of action. After all, the relationship between an individual and a clinician is best when it's a partnership. I think the real challenge is getting people to be aware that those options are there for them. But I think once people start to go down that path, you'll find that you're not stuck with the same doctor that you've always had. I think there's more and more innovative solutions out there. And so I think some of those types of opportunities will change the scope of what's possible for people to meet their needs. Data will not make individuals more informed than their clinicians. And that's not the goal either. We aren't supposed to self-diagnose. Instead, data can help each of us gain a better understanding of our conditions and options, so that when we walk into our next appointment, we can participate in decision-making. To return to the analogy of buying a home, can you imagine trying to buy a property without any information about your own needs or the options available? The second responsibility individuals have is to shift their mindset towards health. Health is not just about sick care. It's about helping people thrive and taking steps to prevent people, including ourselves, from becoming ill in the first place. And being an active participant in health requires us to be engaged not just in our own well-being, but in the health of the people in our communities. With cognitive health, it's also proven that yes, part of it is physical health, but the second thing is social interaction. As we get increasingly enveloped around a technologically advanced society, we are becoming lonelier. The number of interactions that we have with people around us are easily replaced by social media interactions. This is Janice Cha, founder and managing director of Aging Asia, an organization that seeks to improve elder care across Asia Pacific. Many people are affected by loneliness and social isolation, but older people are particularly high risk because they are more likely to live away from family and have a harder time getting out of their homes to socialize. And isolation has serious health consequences. Studies show it is associated with a higher risk of heart disease, stroke, dementia, and other acute and chronic conditions. Technology, medication, and other therapies can help address some of these complications stemming from loneliness, but they can't meet our fundamental need for connection and social interaction. 
cognitive health improvement comes from physical health activities and also it comes from social interaction, talking to someone else, interacting with someone else, engaging them in activities to do it together, even having lunch downstairs once a day with a neighbour. Janice calls the community of neighbours and friends surrounding a person their second family. This group is particularly important for older people because their relatives might not live near them. But these networks ultimately improve health for everyone. We are looking at an ecosystem of support. In a community, you are able to create a second family, foster the social connections intergenerationally. Traditionally, the easy ones that come to mind, yes, advocacy groups. Then there's also community groups. So community groups can come in the form of elder befriender services. It can come in the form of activity centers. It can come in the form of medical care providers. But I think the next group that will come in will be sports and wellness. What is around that community cannot be just aging care services, but it also has to be community sports wellness programs and centers. All of us can participate in these second family networks to improve the cognitive health and general well-being of ourselves and our communities. Imagine this future as described by Janice. I think increasingly then you want to see that there's this one kilometer neighborhood surrounding every person as they age. And in this one kilometer radius, what is everything possible that supports a person to live well? So that includes his lifestyle needs, his food, shopping needs, his transportation needs, entertainment, healthcare. So it's a whole ecosystem that supports a person to age well within one kilometers. In this type of community, every individual could have the support and social connection they need across every life stage. This approach can enhance the intervention suggested by clinicians and public health and create a full ecosystem of care. It is up to us to step out of our homes and participate. By avoiding being proactive in your own health or the health of others, you could risk being left behind by a system that desires and rewards engagement. And by volunteering your time at a care home or community center, you are participating in healthcare, even if it doesn't seem like it. We shouldn't underestimate the effect that each of us can have on the well-being of the people around us. One of the best models of person-centric care is Japan's system of elder care. We look at Japan because it's the earliest to become a super-aged country. And Japan has a lot of outstanding models as well as a well-thought-of long-term care system that helps to encourage the private sector to invest in the aging economy. Over a quarter of Japan's population is 65 or older. So the silver economy is an important part of Japan's health and financial systems. Traditionally, elders were cared for by family members. But in 2000, the Japanese government introduced long-term care insurance to ease the burden on families. The scheme is funded in part by mandatory premiums and co-payments and incentivizes participation from the private sector. When we look at the economy for Japan, I think that you will see the fundamental push which encourages a lot of businesses to enter, is a long-term care funding system. So somebody who is using a long-term care facility will be paying about 20% out of pocket 
and 80% is funded by the long-term care insurance system. As a result of this, not just public sector, but also private sector has come on board and helped to create that innovation and large size of services in the Japanese market. Culturally, Japan is well known for respecting the elderly and having a strong sense of obligation to care for them. But the long-term care insurance system represents an important shift in mindset. Caring for the elderly is no longer seen as an individual or family responsibility, but a societal one. And this responsibility extends beyond financial support to the delivery of care itself. A significant proportion of elder care is actually community-based care. Local nonprofit, public, and private organizations offer a range of services to help the elderly. There are residential homes, but Japan's health system puts primacy on the community approach to care, not only because it is more cost-effective, but because it has the greatest positive impact on well-being. While Japan's specific policy decisions are not necessarily replicable across all health systems, Japan's positive view of aging, focus on preventing loneliness, and emphasis on the importance of community can be applied in any setting. As digital health becomes more prevalent in Japan, many of these solutions will be used to help the elderly and their support networks. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. This quote from British science fiction author Arthur C. Clarke is one of three famous observations Clarke made about the nature of discovery and innovation. Like other industries, healthcare is becoming increasingly digitized. As the growth of telemedicine during the COVID-19 pandemic showed us, health systems and people will have to adapt to digital health. So the responsibility is on health systems to ensure that technology is accessible. I think for any place where you see a surge in digital innovation, if you're not intentional, you risk deepening your inequality in the health system. This is KP Yelpala again. One of the risks of adopting advanced solutions is that not everyone has access to the same technology infrastructure. This is a challenge in countries around the world, including the U.S. 30 million people in the U.S. do not have any internet connectivity, any broadband access. And 30% of people in rural areas in the U.S. lack broadband. If not everybody can access these digital tools, they become a driver of deepening inequality. The implication of KP's point is the following. If people don't have an internet connection, they aren't able to access web-based features like patient portals or electronic health records. And this problem extends globally. Over 3 billion people across the world have no internet access at all. To make sure that digital solutions work for everyone, health systems have to leverage technology that is widely accessible, especially to marginalized or underrepresented groups. Mobile wireless connectivity, which has created the leapfrog opportunities in many emerging markets, is the way that a lot of low-income populations in the U.S. access the internet and diverse populations. So here in the U.S., for the African-American population, there was a study that came and it said that 23% of Black Americans access the internet only through their mobile phone. In Africa and Asia Pacific, people regularly use their phones to receive test results, communicate with their clinicians, 
and even fill prescriptions. KP says modeling this mobile-first approach in the U.S. will help African Americans, rural and low-income populations, and other marginalized groups engage more directly with their care. In addition to accessibility, technology should be so well-designed and fit for purpose that the average person doesn't pay attention to its complexity. Everything has to be really simple. I'll give you the example. A wheelchair has to be really easy to assemble and to compact. Ideally, it can be done with one hand and the person is able to assist themselves to do it. Any kind of robotic technology must be easy for the user to use on the streets and into a vehicle or into a house. And it must be easy for a person to recharge this particular piece of technology. To deliver on this promise, health systems should build user-centric design capabilities so that deploying new technology solutions remain convenient and relevant across different use cases. If your environment is not inclusive for all abilities, even if you have the best mobility devices, a person is basically limited from using the mobility device in their own household environment. But if they leave their homes, they are faced with a whole series of challenges that makes the outside world look like an obstacle course. I think that it's all about the user. So it comes from the person first. How does a piece of technology help to enhance the quality of life for an individual? We can look back to Japan for another example. A recent digital health innovation is to use a smart device which is plugged into the wall socket or attached under the bed in an older person's room to monitor their vital signs. If and when there's a medical emergency or fall, an alert is instantly sent to clinicians and family members. Finally, health systems have a responsibility to be good stewards of the data they gather for population health. Birgit Bauer, the journalist and MS patient advocate we met earlier in this episode, said plenty of people are concerned about data privacy risks and need to feel confident in the value exchange of their private information. Patients are not informed and citizens are also not informed. So we need more education, we need more information. And with that, we can build trust in the citizenship that they can donate or spend their data in a safe and in a secure way. And we have to explain them how it will work and how it will be done. Health systems must be transparent in the way they collect and use data. We covered many other data challenges in episode three of this podcast, but KP adds that individuals should also have access to their own information because it will help us better understand our health and care options. Let's not forget that in a lot of contexts, people may not have access to their own personal health information. People do have a right, in my view, to access their personal health information. In certain cases, you know, clinicians may be concerned about certain aspects of the medical record that they want to be their personal notes as the clinician. I don't think anyone would argue against that. Maybe some would, but I think there's plenty of information that should be made accessible that's ours as patients, as individuals in society. With data sources and the use of smart devices exploding all around us, health systems should consider how it can be better used to improve care delivery and outcomes. Here's Janice summarizing one way all this information can help the elderly. If we can monitor an older person with smart health monitoring devices, 
then we also have to link it with the data collected from inside the house. How do they interact? And then to be able to analyze it in a logical way that then helps to prevent hospitalization, prevent falls, enable an older person to live well in their apartment safely. As both policymakers and as people, I think we can all agree that this future is clearly a better one. As we've learned throughout this season, personalized health presents an opportunity and a challenge to improve almost every aspect of our current approach to healthcare. This includes shifting our expectations as individuals, from taking steps to prevent getting sick, and shifting our mindset from being merely recipients of care to becoming active and informed participants. Being active participants in personalized health leads to maximizing the benefits of this new type of public health system. By taking steps as individuals, including data sharing and being community-oriented, our actions can lead to an outcome of having more good health years for yourself, your loved ones, your friends, and the people around you. This is the Future-Proofing Healthcare Podcast, where we explore how the choices we make today impact the healthcare of tomorrow. Many thanks to my guests KP Yelpala and Janice Cha for their time and insights. Join us in our next and final episode of the season as we reflect on some of the most poignant insights from our guest experts. You can find more information about future-proofing healthcare at futureproofinghealthcare.com, including a full list of sources used in developing this episode. To listen, follow, and review our episodes, head to your favorite podcast player. This show is written, researched, and produced by Taliosa, Mission Based Media, and Roche. Additional research and writing was done by Michaela Arneson. Sound design was by Ivan Yurich. And until next time, I'm Tony Estrella, and thank you for listening. Hold up.